Um, Ian, do you want to go first? I was doing the ladies first thing. <clears throat> no, no, it's okay. On you go, son. You go for it. <laughs> Welcome to the Conversation Series. For season two of this podcast, I've invited some wise and winsome guests from across the country to share with us their thoughts on mission and ministry. We talk about what it means for us to understand the Bible for ourselves and how to reach young people with the gospel in a meaningful way. We think about what poverty and evangelism might look like in the wake of COVID-19 and the rising tide of a new normal. Tying together themes from the parables and the prayer course, this four-part series helps us to imagine what it looks like for us to expand the kingdom of God in the community of Leslie. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by two guests who played a significant role in my formative years as a young Christian and still have a role in teaching, challenging and supporting me today. Ian Birch is the principal of the Scottish Baptist College in Paisley. And Margaret Sutherland is a Director of Postgraduate Research and Senior Lecturer at Glasgow University. I've brought them together to help me think about the role of teaching and learning in the church, as well as an insight into the world of education as the pandemic unfolds. Now, Margaret, I'll start with you. I don't want to age you, Margaret, but you and I have known each other for over 30 years, believe it or not. Uh, we met at my home church, Kirk and Tilk Baptist Church, and we did a lot of things there together. You are the leader and founder of Keynotes Children's Choir, which I was in as a child and then as a leader. So we produced and performed musicals together. You were a teacher at my primary school for a short time, and you helped me when I was um, beginning my career in education. You helped me to apply for teacher training at Jordan Hill. Now, most importantly, apart from the world of education and critical thinking, you have brought me into the world of good shoes. You instilled in me a passion for good shoes. So those of you who were at the induction, who remember my gold sparkly shoes, I wore them in honor of Margaret. So Margaret, thank you for that deep and important passion. Now tell us, Margaret, what does your life look like at the moment? What is it that you do? Well, thank you for that introduction, Amy. Yes, um, you, me and shoes, and shoe shops we go back a long way um, so at the moment I'm a senior lecturer in uh, inclusive education at the University of Glasgow um, I've taught there for over 20 years 22 years maybe prior to that I was a primary teacher and a behaviour support teacher so been teaching in education all my life um, I'm responsible for our 300 or so postgraduate research students that we now have in the School of Education. All of it is education based um, and all of my attention and time is spent um, predominantly with teachers who come back to do further qualifications. Now, it's obviously an important and an exciting role because not only do you get to teach in Glasgow, but you get to teach all over the world. I've seen you posting from all kinds of places and conferences. You get invited to speak in some incredible countries. Where's the last place pre-COVID, obviously, that you got to go and teach? I've got to say, I haven't travelled since March. <laughs> and the place I was in with my work prior to that was China, actually. I was in Shanghai. I was in Wuhan. And I was in Beijing at the end of November last year. Yeah, lots of traveling, which has been um, such an immense privilege. And uh, I've learned so much from being in different countries, different mm. cultures. 
um, and talking in those countries and cultures, of course, about teaching while I've been there. Now, Ian, of course, we have the Kirky Baptist Connection. You were a minister at KBC when I was a teenager in what I call the Stuart Blythe era. And I was just trying to remember our church history is in kind of two sections for me. One is before the new building and one is after. Um, but I couldn't remember. Were you in the old building with us or did you join when we were partway through the renovation? Uh, I came to Kirky in on January the 12th, 2003, uh, when we were in the old building and uh, used to hear the, the plaster uh, falling down behind the walls as I was preaching. Uh, so I, I never preached on the story of Samson because I didn't want any literal pillars collapsing, which uh, we all felt, you know, could, could happen at any time. Uh, yeah, so, um, and then Stuart left and, uh, and the, build, the other builder, the big green shed went up. <laughs> now, I was trying to work out, so I would have been 16 then when you joined. Um, now, you also have a good investment in my education and my um, ministry because your wife uh, was my piano teacher at some point, and I was probably the worst piano student ever because I didn't practice at all. However, <laughs> whenever you see me leading worship at the assembly, <laughs> I will credit Elizabeth for my... Uh, for, for my abilities in playing the piano. And so tell us about your role now. You're also based in education in a slightly different way. What is it you do? Yeah, well, while I was at um, Kirk and Tulloch, uh, I began to do a little bit of teaching at the Scottish Baptist College uh, in biblical studies. And then in 2008, the college decided to appoint a, another lecturer and uh, asked if I was interested in applying. So um, the door, seemed to open at that time and so I made the switch over into to theological education which is actually something that I'd wanted to do quite a long time ago and had applied for a few jobs uh, in teaching in various colleges around the UK and uh, usually got to um, a short list and then had the door slammed in my face so I, I thought it would never happen and then and then when I least expected it uh, it did happen so so 2008, I went to work at the, the Scottish Baptist College as a lecturer. And then when Stuart Blythe and Jim Gordon left in 2013 and 14, uh, I was the only one left. So um, I became the principal of the college and they, I'm still doing that today. So, uh, Well, Ian, you did go through an interview process because I was on the panel that interviewed you. I did, I did. <laughs> did hand it to you. It wasn't, it wasn't an automatic transfer. No, it wasn't. No, no, no. But it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stuart went off to Amsterdam. He went somewhere in Amsterdam as well. And he's now in Canada and uh -huh. very well known in educational circles. When I think that at 16 years old, I had Stuart Blythe and Ian Birch as my teaching pastors. That's an education people pay good money for. And I got it all for free. <laughs> so thank you. And so, of course, Ian and Margaret, you both know each other from Kirky Baptist. And Margaret, you've been involved with the college in the past as well. What was your role there? Yeah, for 10 years, I was the honorary secretary for the Scottish Baptist College. Um, so I had the privilege of working with um, Jim Gordon, who was principal, uh, then with Stuart Blythe, who obviously I knew because he had also been my minister, and then um, with Ian, who I knew as being my minister, but then um, latterly also as a member of staff at the Baptist College, um, I stepped down from being honorary secretary. But that was another really interesting um period of, of time in my life where um, I had to think about teaching but within uh, the context of theology 
Um, so that, that was really, I learned a lot. Um, I hope I contributed something to the college, but I certainly learned a lot from that period in the college too. So as people who are both entrenched in the world of education, um, who typically are teaching face-to-face in a classroom or uh, in other situations, what on earth does your world look like at the moment, given lockdown restrictions, digital learning, distance learning? What does it look like for you to be educators in this season and how are your students coping with it? Uh, People talk about a new normal. I don't know whether that's uh, true or accurate. But um, it's certainly different to the usual. I mean, the, the, the one big shift at the moment is that um, one of the, the ethoses of the college, is ethos is the plural of ethos? I'm not sure. Uh, education by interacting with one another, uh, not just education by somebody standing at the front of a classroom telling everybody what to write down on their pad or, or what to think, uh, even less what to think, but more how to think. Um, but to do that in community and, uh, you know, to engage with each other, which for us is not just um, a mode of learning in college. It's it's how we've tried to um, inculcate into people an understanding of what it is to be a leader of a Christian community, uh, not to just be a talking head at the front who, who's telling people this is the way it is, but to draw people more deeply into a knowledge of God and, and of the ways of God. So, so that learning in community has been very much at the heart of what we are about and the way that we function and the way that we do education. Uh, but at the moment, of course, we can't be in community, not in the same room, at least. So we're in community, but we're on Zoom. And so we are trying by every which way to have um, conversation and to get people to interact and to replicate what we do. But you, you can't exactly replicate it. And so... Um, you know, so so that, that that is the big difference at the moment. I think there's tremendous stress on students. Uh, hours and hours on Zoom is very difficult. Concentration is difficult. Um, you know, just just the sense of distance through a computer is different. So we are trying to do the best that we can to keep the uh, keep the show on the road, and keep things moving forward, and keep people uh, going through their educational experience. But but it's, it's a tough gig at the minute, and I, I feel immensely sorry for students. I think they're missing out on the experience that they ought to be having, that they wanted, and, and what we would want them to have. But everybody is just doing the best that they can. Absolutely. Margaret, are you finding that to be true? Um, yeah, I mean, sort of the immediate thing was this whole notion of pivoting to online learning, where um, I was actually fortunate one of the, the master's programmes that I run, we've had an online course for about 20 years it started as a paper-based distance course so that one was in a relatively good shape we didn't need to do an awful lot to that but for the classes and um where it it runs in face-to-face spaces then suddenly everybody was having to learn a whole host of new skills um, Mm and to be able to you know record lectures to be able to offer synchronous and asynchronous learning opportunities Um, So there was a huge learning curve for staff that took a lot of time Um, and of course staff were also dealing with schools closing so they had some of them had young children at home um, or were carers for elderly parents and relatives so um, suddenly life became much more difficult as well as work life becoming more difficult. Um, and of course, that was true for, for many of our students. The, many of the students that I work with closely, they're our postgraduate research PhD and our um, EdD students. 
um, are all they're they're a little bit more mature, so they've they've already got an undergraduate degree. They're not just straight out of school. So of course, therefore, many of them have caring responsibilities. Some of them work full time and study part time and so on. So um, trying to support all of that um, is is an ongoing battle. Um, we've got students in all different parts of the world. One of the first things I did in the first few weeks of COVID was actually signing off risk assessment forms, insurance forms, um, and um, visa um, forms because of what the Home Office asked us to do. Um, so we knew where our students actually were. We also had some who were already overseas um, doing research that we tried to try and get back in sort of safe ways. So yeah, there was lots and lots of challenges and, and some of them have, um, have, have, we've got under control uh, and others are just kind of ongoing. And, and I think about August time, there was a sudden dawning on everybody that we kind of went into overdrive in March, emergency response stuff. And then August, it was, oh, wait a minute. This is just it now, isn't it? <laughs> this um, is just life. Yeah, and everybody kind of went, blah. Um, so um, the last, yeah, so September's been interesting. Of course, that's the start of term. Um, and we're already planning our online winter graduation. And you know, it's just, just a complete change in everything. Um, however, I would say on a, on a plus sign, I met with our new postgraduate researchers last week and they were all incredibly upbeat. They all have our same old, you know, would we rather be sitting in Glasgow? Yeah, we would be, but we're not. So let's make the most of it. What can we do? And, and they themselves are trying to, to do exactly what Ian was saying there, that whole sense of community, that creating community. Um, and churches in the same way are having to adapt. You know, I've had to adapt to Sunday mornings are not the same. And yeah. we cannot recreate the sense of being in church together. And so as... Um, there's kind of two sides of the coin for me so where are we how are we able to facilitate ministry when we can't be in the room together and still uh, trust and enable the Holy Spirit to be at work to minister to people through what we do and as an educator because I would consider myself in the bracket of educator as well how do I make the kind of learning experience on a Sunday morning um, valuable uh, and worthwhile for the church when it's different the church has been doing a series on the parables, on the parables that Jesus taught. And it's had me thinking in particular a lot about how we learn, uh, how we learn from the Bible, how we teach from the Bible, and this whole process of engaging our minds in learning. Um, so one of the definitions that we've been using, and I made it up, so this is a good time, Ian, now that I'm eight weeks into this, if my definition has been wrong, this is the time for you to set me straight. <laughs> in the church history. Um, but one of the kind of definitions that we've used over the parable series, um, particularly when it comes to the purpose of the parables, uh, we said that the purpose of the parables that Jesus told was not simply to help people navigate moral and ethical dilemmas, but they were a way to provoke a more imaginative and countercultural understanding of the kingdom of God in a way that not only connected with, but surpassed the time and context of the original listener. So first of all, let me fact check the definition that I've been using for eight weeks. Ian, would you would you pass that as theologically sound? <laughs> maybe, maybe a seven out of 10 there. <gasps> <laughs> Tell no, me more. No, I, I, I think that's, uh, that's a really excellent... Uh, definition of what the parable is about. So the, the only thing is, I, I think I would say, is the purpose of the parables. I think the parables have multiple purposes. Um, so, so different parables work in, in different ways. 
Uh, so I, one I think... purpose of the parables. I should rephrase it. Yeah, yeah. One. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. I don't want to discount the the moral spiritual teachings as well that is in there. Um, you're right. I will rephrase that from Sunday onwards. Um, but it's got me thinking about how we teach and learn from the Bible. And I was thinking just, I guess, about the intellectual aspect of faith and the challenge that it can be to our minds. Uh, you know, we're told to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. So if not to leave our brains at the door, um, we are also to take every thought captive and make it submissive to Christ. And so our minds are a huge part of the faith experience. There's an intellectual, rational, and even kind of neurobiological aspect to our faith. So Ian, here's kind of a question for you, and it's going to be a long form question. Anyone who's ever been interviewed by me knows it's a long question. <laughs> uh, there's several parts to this, which you can pick apart. So I kind of view ministry uh, and I kind of say pulpit ministry to mean the the formal presentation and also the leading of house groups and all that kind of stuff. Um, ministry is teaching for education and preaching for transformation. So a good sermon in my eyes and a good kind of teaching plan for the church should do both. There should be ministry for education, uh, teaching for education and preaching for transformation. And we want to make sure we do both. And, you know, for one example that we, we've been thinking about the parables, I've purposely included some things about how parables work. I have not just gone straight into the parable, but said, you know, this is a triadic parable, or here's a parable where these kind of, you know, languages or themes are, are presented that actually tie back to Genesis and look forward to Revelation. But to see the patterns and the themes and all the connections between Old and New Testament does require education. It requires a kind of biblical education of actually looking at that stuff um, in a particular way. And I think week to week, we can preach in a way that transforms people's relationship with Jesus. And we can have a lot of that heart and soul work going on, which is fantastic. But, and you might disagree with this, but we can also shortchange people of their biblical education when we give them the answers and don't show them our work. You know, how we actually use the literary devices of scripture to get to the answers that we got to. So here's the actual question in the core of all of this. What, what does it look like or could it look like for us to equip the church with the tools to understand the Bible as a text that they can handle in an informed and intuitive way, you know, for themselves? And why does it matter that we do that? Good question, Amy. Very good question. <laughs> got there in the end. Long question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, personally, um, you know, I, you know, I've now been a minister, uh, you know, over thirty years. Uh, I started when I was about seven, by the way, but um, no, that was a joke. But but so, I, but I've, I've I've reflected on this long and hard because I've made many many mistakes, and you know, I've, I've been foolish along the way plenty of times. I, I would say there is no big divide between preaching and teaching between education what you want to do in the pulpit. I'm very, very suspicious and not a little bit weary by the kind of preaching that wants to do transformation by battering me over the head with um, try harder, be better, you know, be stronger, be more courageous, be more triumphant as a Christian. I'm just completely weary of that. Um, I think if you teach people who God is and what God's about and the way God works you know the, the truth does its own work and you you can't transform people um, I think it's only God by his spirit that actually transforms people 
So I think if you sort of have a, a winsome and a helpful way of laying out the truth before people, I think that that does it. That does, that's more powerful than the kind of preaching that you know is, is manipulative and tries to be persuasive and and intentionally transform transformative. So that's one one thing I'd say. Um, I think it's really important to teach people, uh, therefore, the whole wisdom of the Bible. Um, I think that the church largely ignores the, the Old Testament now. Uh, very rarely hear anybody preach or teach on the Old Testament. And I think that's a shame because I think that when you come to something like the parables, you can't really understand what's going on if you don't understand the deep wisdom of the Old Testament, especially around some of the very, very key concepts like justice and righteousness and peace and uh, shalom and well-being that God wants for the world. And if we miss those out, what happens is um, we just read the read the parables uh, as kind of easygoing stories that you can read off the surface of it and come out with some sort of moralistic lesson. So if you'll allow me to answer as long as you go for question. it. <laughs> <laughs> for example, for, can I give you an example? Good, please do. Yeah. So one, one of my um, things is that because I, I heard somebody speak about this not so long ago, the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. We just did that on Sunday. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Let's compare notes. Go for it. So this is really dangerous. So, so, <laughs> so most people talk about the parable of the talents uh, as if it's to illustrate the kingdom of God by saying that God has kind of invested in us and we need to use what God has invested in us. And God is looking for a return and it better be a good one or else you're in you're in bother like the man who buries his talent. Whereas my reflection and this sort of came to me in a bit of, uh, of a light bulb moment a little while ago but then i found out that others have had that light bulb moment as well so it's not unique but i was thinking about this parable one time and i heard somebody speak about it and it suddenly occurred to me hang on a second the jews were not really allowed to make interest from loaning people money that was considered an act of injustice and unrighteousness what is going on in this parable where Jesus sets up the person who loans money out, makes interest and says to his master, oh, master, I knew that you were a man who reaped from fields where you had not sown. In other words, he went around stealing the peasants food like people did in the Middle Ages. And I, I knew that you were a man to be feared. Therefore, this is what I've done. I've gone out and made money. Jesus and and the master says well done good and faithful servant and I thought what is going on here there's all kind of strange things happening in this parable and then I began to realize that maybe this is one of those anti-parables that Jesus tells so that we're not to read this as a story that we imitate but this is a story a bit like the unjust judge who won't give the woman what she wants, though she keeps banging on his door day and night until she completely wears him down. And he says, oh, for goodness sake, woman, whatever it is you want. That's a kind of an anti-parable. I thought maybe this is an anti-parable as well, where Jesus tells a story that would have been very, very, very familiar to the to the poor people that he ministered amongst. People who loaned money at high interest and then squoze the life out of people or stole their, their land and their property to get the money back and to make a profit. And basically what he's saying is, all of this goes on 
And the world thinks that that's commendable to loan money, make a profit, and you're successful. He doesn't actually say that we should imitate this. He just leaves it hanging as one of those sort of open questions. And at the end of it, maybe the man who the world condemns, who just buried his coin in the ground and gave the master back what, he, what he'd been given, was actually the hero of the story. Because the only reward that he can possibly get is not one that he earned, not one that he manufactured, not one that he bullied out of other people, but one that he would be given as a gift of grace. Mm. And that's where Jesus is coming from in these, these parables that talk about reward and punishment at the end of time, is that we're not going to be rewarded because of what we earned or what we achieved, but because of God's grace. So I think when you read the parables against the background of some of the Old Testament concepts of justice and righteousness and, and, and what God wants for the world, and, and we know that he expressly forbade the making of interest, you sort of get a, like maybe a different perspective on what's going on here in this teaching. And I think it's deeper and I think it's richer. It's more thought provoking. It's more challenging to the structures of the world because he's not just it's not just a simple thing about, oh, well, God gave you a gift of singing or making music. You better do that. This is about asking deep questions about the way the world works and which side uh, of the divide we're on, whether we're on the world's side <laughs> or whether we're on God's side. And, uh, and Jesus couldn't ask those questions maybe directly. Maybe he could, you know, he wasn't a politician in that sense. But he, he had a way of telling stories that left people asking really, really serious, hard questions. And the more you think about those questions that he was asking um, and the way that he was understood by both the poor and the rich, it doesn't take you long to realise why he got crucified. He, controversial was he indeed. Well, I'm now going to have to go and rethink my sermon from Sunday and our house group discussion is going to be very interesting on Tuesday night. But yeah, we need we need to know those things in order to uh, let them inform our perspective. And something else that we we have talked about, we talked about in week one, um, the parables were were a teaching tool that Jesus used, and the parables and the way that he told them, um, often the parables are thought of as a way to dumb down complex theology into simple, relatable stories for the listeners, so that everyone could understand them. Uh, and in our introduction to the parables, I argued that actually Jesus says these are not for everybody. Not everybody is going to understand them. Some are going to be left wondering. Some are going to be left not hearing, not understanding. And actually, that's that's okay. Jesus said himself that, hey, not everyone's going to get this. There, there's an element of willing participation required in the listener uh, to benefit from what they're hearing and a whole other host of things. But people can be very uncomfortable with the idea of teaching in a way that doesn't give all the answers. I, I see it in ministry, I see it in, in other areas of life. Um, preachers in particular feel the need or the conviction or the burden to explain everything in as much detail as possible so that nobody should miss out or be left wondering. And Margaret, I'm just wondering in the realms of secular education, how is that approach viewed? Is it, is it okay to teach in a way that leaves people with more questions than answers? Um, and what are the strengths and weaknesses of taking that approach to our faith education, if you like? 
Um, so to leave people wondering, it is good to not always have the nice answer. Teachers, a little bit like preachers, want to sort everything often um, and they want to fix it. And they want to make it right and they want to make it better for children um, and young people. And um, in actual fact, I think we do them a disservice when we do that. And, and it is that whole idea about learning to learn, the metacognition aspect of learning, knowing how you learn and all the rest of it. Um, and I suppose as you and Ian were talking there, and I was listening to that, I've just been scribbling down some thoughts as they came into my head. And I suppose I was thinking about the range, when you're talking about knowing about these linking, how you link these bits together. But if you don't know what you don't know, then you've nothing to link. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, I, and I think that's going to become even more. Essentially, you're, you're, you're sitting with a, what we would call in education a very mixed ability class in terms, well, actually in terms of perhaps engagement, knowing how to engage in, and then actual mixed ability of knowledge as well, mixed um, knowledge that comes. Um, and so actually for, I think, for the facilitator or the teacher or the pastor, that's, that's quite a difficult position because you're, you're, you're kind of guiding, I think is really what, what you're doing there. Um, one of my areas of, of research and interest is what we would call in Scotland highly able children. So kind of the extreme example of that would be the, the two-year-old that can read fluently with meaning and comprehension, etc. So able to work well in advance of what their chronological age would suggest. And they also have elements, some, some of them have, have this kind of whole perfectionism and they like to get things right and they don't like to be wrong and of course if they're not challenged at all then they never do get things wrong and, and they really struggle when when they do meet the first time that they get something wrong which actually sometimes takes to get to university before that happens um so i suppose um knowing what i know about them and and how important it is about i would be arguing to take them to the point of failure but you need to know it's safe to fail um I would also be arguing that, that we need to give them open-ended questions, we need to give them open-ended tasks, we need to start them off from the one place that sees them going in all sorts of places and saying, well, actually, you know, is there one right answer or actually are all of these answers? How do we, how do we deal with this? What, what can we do? Because, because learning's not linear, it's not straight. It's, I think it's very messy in, in many ways. Learning's very messy. But also that whole idea of being able to participate. And, and maybe that's one of the things that an online forum allows us for more of that kind of active participation. I'm quite comfortable with the open-ended questions, but I'm also comfortable as a teacher and, and as a preacher to leave things open-ended. And I think people struggle with that, partly maybe as a minister, because you feel the burden that you should have all the answers and you need the congregation to have confidence that you have all the answers. And, and I'm pretty sure in week one, when I joined the church, I said, by the way, I'm only 32 years old and I don't know everything. I'm really sorry. So <laughs> you're gonna get the best of what I've got right now. Uh, and I'll learn as I go. I mean, Ian, is there anything in that that you, you think that we can do to keep ourselves open as, as preachers, as educators, to not having all the answers and not having to give all the answers? I think just living life tells you that you haven't got all the answers. Uh, you know, I'm just constantly perplexed by everything that's going on around me. You know, I wonder why God just doesn't zap the COVID-19 away. I can't understand why the political parties that I support don't triumph over the you know, the others who I think are less than adequate to the task, you know, and this kind of thing. So so life is always throwing up challenges. And um, and I think it's important to, in ministry as well to keep reading, to keep learning, to keep growing. 
uh, I think that's really, really, really important um, to keep challenging yourself. And, uh, you know, it's in those ways that you're just constantly surprised by things that you learn and realise how little do you know? You know, it's, it's like that old saying, isn't it? You know, the more that you learn, the more you, the more you actually realise you don't know. So, yeah. When I first started preaching, I remember saying to my mentor, but what happens if now, you know, I, I was 27 when I started preaching, I said, what happens if at 27 years old, I preach a sermon that at 35, I no longer agree with and think is wrong. What if I do that? And he says, you will. <laughs> That's an absolute guarantee you will. That's the nature of learning. You do change. You know, the more you learn, you assimilate and, and hook it's about hooks that you already have and what you then hook on that new learning to. And you do come to different and, mm -hmm. and, and things change round about you as well. There's all kinds of things I think come in and impact on you that then you bring together to, to better understand where you find yourself. I still think there's a job to be done though, um, around the expectations or helping. A congregation to, to to understand the expectations of a what you're going to give them but b also what you're not going to give them <laughs> um so and i and i think um so i think there's a job to be done there for i would imagine anyway for for pastors um to help congregations see what they're trying to do because i think if you if you particularly perhaps if you take on i would guess anyway correct me if i'm wrong here. But I would imagine if, if you become the pastor of a church, um, if you've got a very, very different style and approach to what that church has been used to, you can't kind of go in and bang, right, okay, last week you just sat and listened, this week we're going to break into groups and do, yeah, well, that's not going to work. You can't do that in the classroom either. If, if you've got one way of dealing with behaviour, you can't just change it overnight. You've really got to, to, to help the young people understand why you're making these changes, what those changes are going to mean. Uh, and there'll be a rough patch at the beginning until we're all kind of understanding where we're coming from. And I, I would, I would imagine that, that there's something in there as well when you take on um, a congregation and a, a church. If you're going to do something different, different. And, and and new people should do something different. I would have thought, yeah, there's there's definitely, a, I guess, as you as a teacher, there's an assessment period where actually. You assess the church and you assess their learning needs. Yeah, and, and you out, Amy. Don't think it's all one way. There's, there's sussing me out as well. Don't you worry. Um, but, but you are sussing out their learning needs, their learning styles, um, the kind of levels of engagement and prior knowledge, as you would with a classroom, or at least I do anyway, because I've, I've got that kind of teaching background. And so yeah, there's been a kind of an assimilation period where I say, what is actually beneficial for, for this church as a learning community? And seeing the church as a learning community is actually part of it, not as the, the empty vessels that my job is to stuff scripture into them every week. Something though there, I mean, the three of us are all involved in education and learning. And I'm, I'm gonna guess three of us like learning. We've all gone on to do extra qualifications and degrees and so on. Um, but if, if you're quite happy coming along each Sunday and actually not having to think very much at all, then that, you know, somebody then coming and demanding that you actually participate and, and are an active participator in this could be quite troubling. Yeah. But I, I do think, you know, because I do sit in a congregation now as much as, uh, as speaking because of COVID and things. And, um, you know, I think this is something I didn't understand for a long time as a minister, and that is that not everybody does come along to church with their notebook and their pen to learn. You know, people come for all kinds of different things, and some people do just come for a sense of peace and a sense of calm, uh, you know, especially if they have very troubled lives. 
And I don't think it's, you know, I never understood that enough, really. I, I thought, that, you know, church had to be a bit more intense and, uh, you know, had to I had to make sure everybody was getting something out of it sort of thing and worked very hard at that. But um, maybe but they, you know, they were getting we something out of just not what you anticipated. Yeah, I mean, and but for people to switch off, even to close their eyes and fall fast asleep, it's not a big deal. I mean, if that's, you know, I think I think if you see church really as community, even before learning environment, it's about community and it's about where you are taking this group as a community and you're part of that community. So mm -hmm. you're learning together, you're discovering together, you're growing together, you're sharing life together. So you know, if people just need to come and just tune out of what you're saying and just have a moment of sort of peace and, and calm, that, that's fantastic. I, I think church is doing its job if it, if it creates a space for people to, to receive something differently in different ways and, uh, and not to worry too much about that. And I think, I think if you see yourself as part of the community, again, something I think I would have found very, very difficult when I was younger, but now I don't think it would bother me at all. It would be to go back to something you said, and that is to stand up on one one day and say, Do you know, what? some years ago I preached this passage and I said this, and now I don't think that at all. I think something completely different, you know. Uh, and I think that I think people are liberated by hearing you say things like that. Actually, we should be nor it should be normal for us to change our mind and our perspectives as we gather more information. I think that's something that's kind of uh, culturally becoming a bit of a you know don't ever back down and say you're wrong just dig your heels in regardless and we do we need to normalize particularly I'm very adamant that the pulpit isn't the be all and end all but we are in some ways modeling a faith life from the pulpit and so for me it's normalizing the ability to say I might have been wrong and I'm also open to correction and our church has a because we have a preaching team um but the preaching team amongst us disagree quite often <laughs> with one another's interpretations of, of a particular passage. And we openly discuss that in the house group. And here's why I didn't agree with that. And here's why I agreed with somebody else's point. And everyone goes, cool, okay. And that's normal and that's fine, which really relieves the pressure as a preacher that um, I have to get it right and I have to stand by my interpretation at all costs. When there's people in the congregation who have known their Bible back to front for 50 years, and can teach me a thing or two and should absolutely be able to teach me a thing or two. Um, so there's definitely a humility in, in that. Um, confidence as well though, I think in being able to say, I've changed my mind and, and, and but you also have to know why you've changed your mind. Mm. It's back to that knowledge thing, I think as well. And how, I mean, learning should be exponential. The more you learn, the more you can learn, the more, you, you know, and so it goes on. So I think, um, I think there's something in, there as well and and I think some of that comes with with experience it comes with age as well. So we've pulled at some great threads already we've looked at um, church first and foremost as community but also as a learning community and we've thought about the role that we have as leaders and being willing learners for the rest of our lives so many good things in there. A key focus for us through the parable series has been on the kingdom of God um, and what it would look like for his dynamic rule and reign to be present in our world and in our communities. What does it look like to each of you to see the kingdom of God in your educational spaces? Although we're a Christian college, one of the things that we consider to be very valuable is about where we are geographically positioned, which is in the University of the West of Scotland. Now, at one point in my life, I did some study at St. Andrew's uh, University 
And uh, when I was a student at St Andrews, one of the things I was very conscious of was the elitism uh, of, of a university like St Andrews. And um, that the drum that they like to bang regularly about, uh, you know, that th this is only for the for the top notch students and uh, not that I was particularly, but and uh, it's interesting working at, in a university like the University of the West of Scotland, which is the bottom of a lot of league tables in Scotland. But, 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 but I would say I, I think this is very admirable of the place It is that they they prize wider inclusion of, of students, especially of uh, an older age, uh, wider access, inclusion of all kinds of people, giving people a second chance into edu higher education who maybe didn't get it first time round when they left school. And I think there's just so many people in society whose potential is not being realised and they feel shut out from the mechanisms by which they can get on in life. And so the kingdom of God in education, I, I see that as part of that. I, I see the kingdom of God coming to say it doesn't matter how you messed up or how you missed out at one point in your life. There's, there's still a future. There's, you can start today to, to make progress, to be better, to move forward. And, um, you know, I've seen that in the Baptist College. I mean, we, we've had students who come and uh, I, I can remember one who I won't name, but he, his, his face is very, very vivid in my mind, who said, I, when I was at school, I was told I, I was just thick and I was stupid. I was an idiot, all that kind of language. And it actually turned out that he had quite quite a big problem with dyslexia, which was diagnosed by an educational psychologist at the university. And we helped him through. And the day that he got his degree, not only did he cry his eyes out, but so did his, his mum and dad for, for that reason. Who's saying we never we were always told he, he would come to nothing that he was useless and he couldn't learn and, and all the rest of it. And, it. and I just think, you know, to be part of that process whereby you see people being lifted up and put on a put on a rock and given a chance to move forward. Oh my, if that's not the kingdom of God, well. Absolutely, I mean, my, my social works kind of parting comments to my parents was that I wouldn't do very well educationally. Um, at three years old, I'd missed the boat already and, and I was too far behind and, and probably wouldn't thrive in, in school setting. And But yeah, yeah, there's something really redemptive in, in making that um, the experience possible for people. Predicting what anybody will go on to do in the future is really dangerous. And one of the things that I really hit hard with any of the teachers that I'm talking to is not to predict. Um, I, I Either prediction one, I've had a teacher say to me, well, you know where he's going to end up, meaning prison. Um, and this was a five-year-old. I've also had parents say to me, will he go to university? She go to university? And it was a five-year-old that we're talking about. I'm not willing to predict on either of those five-year-olds' lives. Um, but I know what, very clearly what I think my job as a teacher is to do. One is to support and help the child to see if they might want to go to university, if that's relevant and right for them. And the other is if I think there's a chance they might end up in prison, what do I do to stop them getting there? I don't stand back and watch and go, well, am I not good at predicting that? So um, I've got a bit of a thing about the notion that we can predict, um, especially of young, well, actually at all, but I, I get particularly upset when I hear about it being um, a prediction of young people and what which is on. a Which is a kingdom value that transformation is possible. Yes, indeed. Um, I suppose, as, as Ian was talking there, I was thinking, 
every morning. Every morning at the University of Glasgow, we have a short 10 to 15 minute um, Christian-based service in the university chapel, our beautiful chapel. It's a kind of, there's a, a sort of response thing we all say. We usually sing a hymn, the, the chapel organ is played. Um, there's a passage we read, you make comment on it, you can either read it from a book that we get or you can make up your own and then the closing response and the grace and that's it. And it's, it's short and sweet and that's it. Um, and I've been part of that, the, the rota that, that does these for the last maybe, I don't know, four years, five years, something like that. Um, but because of where I live, because of where the, the chapel is, etc., and getting in in the morning and roads and traffic since um, we've started again in September I've been almost every morning because it's all on zoom now and I've been able to go along so there's 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 that aspect um, of faith I think um, in our in the university we've just appointed a new chaplain and um, she's she's wonderful um, and I'm just kind of getting to know her and and what I think um, some of the discussions we've had about, I've been looking at developing an interfaith room in the building that I work in, um, because of course we have many, many international students um, and as well as, as home students, um, some who come with no faith, some who come with very strong faiths and it's faiths plural, it's not, we're not just talking about Christian um, faith here. So there's, there's kind of that aspect to it. Um, I'm also the chair of a faith and spirituality group. It's an international group. In fact, Lena from the um, Baptist College is also part of that group. And we've been doing a sort of little action research project over COVID um, that we're hoping to kind of write up and publish about. And that's been kind of exploring what it's meant to be a person of faith in where the community that you find yourself in um, and that's I say is an international thing and that's been very interesting as well hearing different perspectives from different parts of the world and I guess from a personal level for me um, then I think it's also about what I am like what I do how I conduct myself my demeanor um, I you know valuing all of our students um, I said at the beginning that I lecture on inclusive education, so I'm, you know, passionately interested in issues of um, justice. Um, I think the three things that, that Ian, the big ideas Ian mentioned at the beginning were justice, righteousness and peace. Um, and, and I'm very interested in all of those things, things as we're trying to create inclusive schools. Um, and therefore I see that I, I would marry up, I guess, what I am... Um, reading and thinking about and working about in that educational context through issues of inclusive education alongside what I believe um, and, and what my faith brings to that and then me in there as a kind of person trying to put all that into practice do I get it right every time oh my goodness no but um, I, I certainly think it's what I should be striving for I certainly think all of those things together um, would be how I would see my faith in a sense kind of playing out in the community, the work community that I find myself in. It's so interesting. That's a, a theme that kind of inclusive inclusivity in my days. Um, haven't had a gin yet. Inclusivity uh, is a real key theme for both of you and even in different contexts to know that um, God hasn't sold any of us short and that transformation is possible for each and every one of us. Um, and, and to be that kind of opportunity for redemption I guess is such a powerful witness um, 
to to the bigger story that God has for each of us. So it's exciting. My last question for both of you: um, How can we pray for students, for teachers, and for faculty um, in our community and, and at this time? How do we how do we pray for and support those in education? I I I think that prayer on a number of levels. I I. I think for education generally, that um, the educationalists keep the welfare of students front and centre. I think some very big decisions uh, in education just recently have been made for purely financial reasons, yeah. like getting students back into halls of residence and things like that. Um, so we could pray on the big scale that people will act righteously and do the right thing for, for students. Uh, I think the experience of students at the moment is very, very varied. Um, some students are very, very stressed by being at home all of the time, um, learning online. They feel trapped. They feel like their head is being squozen in a vice. So they're trying to do their best. They're trying to battle on that. You, you could pray that students will have strength uh, mm -hmm and that they will have perseverance to get through and know the help of God in all of that. And, and the experience of teachers would, would be parallel to that as well. <laughs> Some of us feel like sometimes we never get out the house for days on end and uh, a lot of your life is spent sitting in front of a little screen and you long for some human interaction. So just pray that God will be in all of that. No yeah. easy answers. Yeah. I think as well, um, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, when you look at what happens um, in countries like Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge and so on, the first thing they did was to go for universities and what they see as intellectuals because they see it as a threat. They see people that are actually doing all the things we've just been talking about, the, the thinking, the linking, the making sense, the connecting, learning. Um, when you've got people that are, are able to think critically, and, and we're helping our young people in school, I think rightly to do that, that can be a threat if you've got a particular message and a way of being that you want to put across. So I, I think universities are in precarious positions in relation to things like freedom of speech. And we obviously saw the horrific things that happened in France, so maybe questions about what the teacher was doing and so on, but, but nonetheless, it's, it, you know, all of that thing, I, I think just now, particularly in Western societies is, um, is under the spotlight a little bit. So I, I think praying that that openness can continue, praying that critical thinking can continue, because I think when we lose that criticality, that's a big thing to lose um, because then people don't challenge, they don't question whether what's happening is, is wrong or if there's a different way to do it. So I think, I think again, that kind of big idea, as Ian was saying. Um, I think from the students, that I'm working with, um, I have seen an increase in things like requests for suspension of their studies just now, for um, extensions just a bit longer to complete the work they're doing. And I think for me, one of the things that this whole pandemic has done, it seems to me that where there were any tiny little cracks in anything now from a personal level, if it was your health, your mental health, your finances, your relationships, if there was wee cracks there, COVID has just blown them apart. Yeah. Um, I think when you look at systems and structures um, across 
institutions, for example, where someone we knew weren't very good. Well, COVID's blown it apart. Homelessness, all the big issues in society, blown apart again, I think, by, by COVID. So I think many of our students who, who maybe had pre-existing mental health conditions or health conditions, um, or you know things they weren't kind of just in a good strong solid place I think they found this period hard and the same for staff as well and so I think um, praying for staff and for our students um, and for the support because you know universities do have support people that can help but we're not awash in these people um, and so it is I think about individuals people like myself and my um, the way I get alongside people, the way that staff get alongside and so on. So it's about relationships. I think it's about communication. So just, just praying for institutions, universities, colleges generally um, and for the young people in these places who are, who are going to be the future. Um, so just remembering all of that, I think would be, would be really good. Hopefully this will be a very resilient future, but it's not, you wouldn't wish it upon them to have to be this resilient when they are, you know, in, in quite a vulnerable position. Um, so we appreciate that you are, you're there and that you're taking care of them and that um, I'm sure anybody who's under your tutelage is, is well cared for. So thank you very much. Well, listen, thank you both so much for giving me your time and for sharing your thoughts with me. I've learned a lot and I've got some things to go and rethink, which is good. That's why we do this. Um, but, uh, yeah. I've got one question. Okay. What shoes have you got on? I'm wearing my slipper socks. <laughs> Okay, I'll let you off. It's, it's so cold. And I bought some really nice winter boots and I've got nowhere to go that I can wear them. So they're all lined up, ready to go, and I'm not going out anywhere. So it's, it's a sad time for my winter wardrobe, I tell you that. Um, well, bless you both. Thank you so much for being here. And we will be praying for you on Sunday. And keep Thank in touch. You. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. I am so grateful to Margaret and Ian for spending this time with us and for helping me to think through some of these key themes. This week, you can pray for them in their different educational contexts, along with praying for our local school staff, teachers, pupils and students, including those in our own congregation. Next week, I'm going to have two great guests who will be helping us think about the challenges of addressing poverty and supporting vulnerable families through the current crisis. Tune in next Wednesday for the second part of the conversation. You know, to be part of that process whereby you see people being lifted up and put on a, put on a rock and given a chance to move forward. Oh my, if that's not the kingdom of God, well, 